Welcome to another commission podcast. Uh, this time we've got a film that is commissioned by uh, a series of people. <laughs> uh, it's made in 1999 based on a novel by Chuck Palahniuk, I think is how you say his name. Uh-huh. Uh, the commissioners for this are Alyssa, David, and Ryan, and they're doing it as a Christmas present for... Uh, they're rel- I think they're all related to Daniel L., who is the, the primary target of this commission podcast. This is a fishy situation. I don't believe any of them exist. Hmm. I could see why. I could see why, given the nature of this film. Uh, it's it's always difficult. He, he wrote in and he got this big, long thing about, like, oh, I want to talk about the philosophy of this film. I want to talk about all sorts of different things. And he's saying, like, look, it's one of our favorite films. He and his brother, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always tricky talking about someone else's favorite movies. Sure. Because inevitably they're going to be more familiar with them than you are. Right. And and I've seen this movie maybe twice. Like I don't know how many teeth these dudes are are, are missing. I don't know how many lie burns they have on their hands. <laughs> like if, if if that's who I'm dealing with, uh-huh. uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure what I can do to satisfy them. You know. I'm imagining that Daniel looks just like Jared Leto does, like halfway through this film. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, sure. And also they have a sometimes irrational appreciation of the film, right? Because yeah. there's a nostalgia factor. Sure. There, there's that, and there's. Just what you think is what you think, and someone else may not agree. Well, the first rule of feeling... commission podcast is you don't question the value of a commission podcast because That's as soon true. as you do, the proposition immediately breaks down. <laughs> How much Christmas to gift. have these two guys? Uh... Un- unless three people team up and it's a commission. That's true. Gift, you but know? then then you have the weird uh, the the. Buyer's remorse by proxy, you know. Oh yeah, that's powerful. That's like you powerful wasted all feeling. your money on this for me. Sure. Now I feel bad. Sure. <laughs> Christmas ruined. That's what we're staring. <laughs> I feel like it's the beginning of the movie. I'm staring down a barrel of a gun stuck in my mouth. Yeah. You got three minutes. I got three minutes. Unfortunately, to, to mumble my way out of it. Th- there, there's a lot more than three minutes of this podcast already, and we haven't even talked about the movie yet. Oh, pressure's off. What's your background, first of all, with Fight Club? Um. Man, that's interesting because I actively don't recall the first time I saw this movie. Huh? You've suppressed it. I actively could be. suppressed it. it. It could be, but I. It's one of the very few first ones where because I feel like I saw a lot of this movie before I saw the whole thing, and but I remember like seeing it about a year ago. I sat down and actually watched it with my girlfriend, and I felt like that was kind of my first time, mm-hmm. but. I feel like that because uh, this thing's become you know this is a staple of the internet you know there's a lot of people every once in a while you'll you'll see people on Facebook and on Reddit and on Twitter uh, post something from this movie with a picture of Brad Pitt with the bar of soap and like it's supposed to be profound and I feel like that this is one of those movies where it's it's kind of the philosophy of it is interesting just on a cerebral level sure um but then if you're a a young man the younger and the the, the angrier the better it's going to really huh. speak to you okay like and That's i'm not saying an like i don't and i i know for a fact cuz i did some research into this is that real life fight clubs sprung up around the country in response to this Especially there was a, com- a couple notable ones in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's bizarre that you can sit through this movie and think the point of it is I need to go and punch people in the face. Agreed. I, so I think that's a it's obviously the less nuanced 
take of it, right? If you're right. going to take that away from it, I want to start up one of these clubs. But there's there's so many different takes you can take on this. Like absolutely, yeah. there's like uh, this is a cautionary tale about fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a cautionary tale about toxic masculinity. This is a tale Questioning about the evolution of society. This is a tale about how, you know, men have been taught to be a particular type of men. But in the last generation or two or three, they've been raised by women that have disapproved of that. And society sure. as a whole is telling them that now that's the bad way to react but really in the secret beating heart of male society, we all know deep down that you're supposed to act like this particular way. Uh, well, there's also the, the question of just, you know, society and civilization evolving and where does that leave the hunter-gatherer type, right? And also, like, it's it's also a class class struggle because there's it's not sure. just men versus women and soft men versus yeah. hard men. It's also like... <laughs> rich men versus poor guys or blue-collar versus white-collar. I feel like it's it's rooted in the middle class, right? Like the office job middle class. I mean, that's certainly where Ed Norton is at at the beginning of this film. It's a takedown of consumer culture. Yeah, absolutely. It is that. Um, there are a lot of different things ph- philosophically that we're going to get into. But so so your overall impression of it is shallow? No, I think it's a great movie with a lot of interesting philo- philosophy that I think um, falls apart on – uh, you know, I, I, cause I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy who's pretty mellow, who's very happy with the way things are going in his life. And I don't mm-hmm. feel, uh, I feel like I've come, I mean, I've certainly been in periods of my life where I felt repressed and, and disenfranchised and, and, yeah. uh, you know, not powerful, which, you know, it's like, there's other things like, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about women's issues and minority issues. And so I hope that I'm forgiven for talking about just like the issues with straight white men. So like at the beginning, I just want to say sure. like, I do, I don't really care. Like this is like, you know, the world's smallest violin playing for us mm-hmm. because there are, there are some issues with, uh, with, with being just a, just a dude in the, uh, ascendant class. Like there are definitely sure. issues Cog unique to that, that you probably yeah. can't understand the, you know, the harmful effects of these, uh, the, the the patriarchy and how it affects men and 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 mm-hmm. how the class issues and and how masculinity and what's your definition of that like I, so again like this might sound like a lot of whining and a lot of eye rolling to people but whatever that's what the movie's about so we're gonna talk about it yeah there's no way to avoid that discussion sure when you're watching this movie um so my my background with it is I've seen it I think one other time uh really yeah I haven't seen this movie very many times. Hmm. Um, I kind of, I kind of identified more with the badassness of this movie when I was, I must've been like 20 when I saw this for the first time, maybe, yeah. maybe that, that old. So you're super young. You, I, I, I'm guessing you had something of a chip on your shoulder. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. About being ill used by But not, by not in the way that this movie does, right? This movie is more about like, it is less about the the possibilities of the future and kind of the rut you're stuck in. And I didn't necessarily feel like I was stuck in a huge rut there mm. other than being held back by my religion and all that kind of stuff. But, right. But you were coming out from underneath that. And when you're 20, the world is your oyster, right? Sure. You're looking at things and you're saying, I can do anything I want. What's the problem here? But I do think that that's, that's one of the core frustrations of the movie too, is the sensation when, you know, you're a young man 
and yeah. you want adventure and you want your life to be meaning and you realize that you are born too late to explore the world and yep. too young to explore the universe. So all you really can do is consume. Sure. You can look cool and act cool and be cool and you know, that's that's uh, you know, if you're if you're a kid growing up wanting to be an astronaut or a cowboy or an explorer or you know an Indiana Jones or a Han Solo, that's a it's it's a it's a harsh wake up call. Absolutely, that ain't, ain't gonna happen. And that's the thing I identify more with as I get older. I think yeah. the the part like the parts of this movie that I almost completely ignored as a twenty year old watching it mm-hmm. are the parts that I identify with most now that I'm you know in my thirties and. Uh, don't have like a family or anything Mm -hmm. like that's that's the thing that i identified with most is kind of just the the lack of purpose of it all right Mm -hmm. and now that that's helped a little bit by building you know what i consider a a good thing in bald move i think Mm -hmm. that's awesome and that's kind of a purpose within itself sure but i i think that is a big question especially as I, i said earlier like once society and civilization has evolved to a point where those things that that society depended on men for Mm -hmm. no longer require like these big muscular masculine guys Mm -hmm. to do where does that leave those types of people and 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 how does that affect the identity like you said of men in general and i think that's the questions that this movie raises are more interesting than any potential answer it's going to give you yeah um i i think it's meant more to think about than to say affirmatively because we are in a transition period we're in a transition where like you know uh, in this country right now, communism is a dirty word. Like it's, it's. Oh, if yeah. you say you're a communist <laughs> or a socialist, you are going to get a swift kick in the ass. You're not going to make the office, and if you somehow did, you'd get unelected very quickly. Yet, in a hundred years, I feel very strongly that if this world is not a Mad Max dystopia, it's going to look very much <laughs> like a communist communist utopia. Like. With, yeah, could. With, you think about like what um, artificial – like if you have pervasive artificial intelligence with pervasive automation with some kind of free energy, either nuclear fusion or solar energy, uh, tidal energy, something that we will probably invent in the next 100 years, you're going to have this entire – like everything that you would want to consume is going to be abundant and plentiful and cheap to make and – if you don't have any, if you don't have a working class, then there's like two ways that can go. You've got like Morlock and Eloy, where you've got the people, the the one percent that kind of literally live in, you know, this this utopian society. Ninety nine percent of the world lives in squalor, or mm-hmm. you're going to have a situation where everyone kind of has the same standard of living. Okay. But at what? So so where? How do you transition that? Where the people that have the capital that stake that 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 risk their money. And own the things, slowly let go of that as the working class diminishes and keeps getting smaller and smaller. So I like, and, and I if, if people are just continue to continue to think of things like socialism and communism as toxic concepts, how the hell do you make that transition? I I mean, is this I don't know that this movie is necessarily about capitalism in that sense. I think this movie is more about uh finding a sense of purpose i think in i I, I don't because i I mean socialism or communism may even be a bigger problem in that regard well but when the central thesis of the movie is i'm going to blow up these credit card companies and erase everyone's debt and also deliver a speech to these rich people who are trying to crack down and protect the status quo and say 
We yeah. are the people who shovel your shit and scoop up your garbage and put your children in the bed and guard you while you sleep. Don't sure. fuck with this. That is... But that's not how it starts, That's right? a revolution, it's, man. It's very strange to me that that's where he ends up based on where he started. Like, I don't know that... Why does he have something against Starbucks as this rich entity? Why Why does he not see that as his own personal problem? Look, I'm... I'm buy into this system it's something i need to escape rather than something i need to destroy well because i mean he's dealing with these i guess he's enlightening other people and this is his final big mission to do that also he's suffering from a lot of Uh self-loathing um and it's very easy to redirect self-loathing to the imagined targets of your you know it's like oh if everybody it's, it's starbucks on every corner that's the problem it's not the fact that i have substituted meaningful connections with people yeah uh i've substituted that with with physical possessions and i've ex- i've i've substituted legitimate experiences with a prepackaged mediocrity and i guess that's the switcheroo that he does in his own mind that i don't i i, I don't get mm-hmm. i don't connect with because like for me destroying the system is not the the potential goal potential goal is escaping the system doing doing your own things on your own terms and not worrying about whether or not other, other people are going to. Yeah. But, but he wants to take it down. He wants to bring the whole thing down because he sees it as a problem. So. Right. Sure. But also does he see... Um, so I thought it was interesting. So uh, the author, uh, Chuck uh, Palunik. Pal- Palunik? 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 Yeah. Um, did you know why he wrote Fight Club? No. So he went camping with some friends one weekend, and the campground next door was playing the music really loud late at night, and it was spoiling the people that want, you know, you go camping, you got a certain expectation of being out in, you know, the wilderness, and be able to have a campfire, and it's kind of quiet and peaceful. Uh-huh. And he went over to the campground and said, hey, would you mind turning down the radio? And they beat the shit out of him. <laughs> Uh, wow. So he slings okay. back to his campsite and, you know, he's got black eyes and I don't know whether he got, but, but he said, I went into work on Monday morning and I expected people to be like, oh my God, what happened to you? But like people refused to actually look like it was a, <laughs> it was a shameful, that's like, oh, there's this guy who's got his ass kicked. That's a story that's gotten no happy ending. I don't want any part of it. So it's like. Everyone's just sure. either refused to make eye contact with him, or if they were forced into conversation, they would make banal observations about the weather or how his weekend was or stuff like that. And he thought that was so huh. weird that these people that he worked with refused to make any kind of personal connection if there was any kind of pain or inconvenience that gotcha. he just developed this kind of fascination with how society blacks out these things that they don't want to see, mm-hmm. especially when it's considered something shameful, like, hey, you got your shit kicked out of you. Um, yeah. And then that's kind of how, I mean, once you kind of have that awareness, but what's interesting is that you hear that story and you think, oh, well, here's a guy who is traumatized. Here's a guy who, um, you know, he made it completely... Like, that's what you should do. If you've got your neighbor who's doing something that's inconsiderate, maybe they don't know. You go and say, hey, could you, would you mind turning the music down? I'm trying to enjoy this peaceful evening. Mm-hmm. And you get, your, you get the shit kicked out of you. That's a breakdown of the, the, the social contract. Like, in the old yeah. days, uh, you know, Chuck might have gone over there at the club and beat them all to death. Or with his pistol and challenged them to a duel. And that's uh-huh. another transition period. We're going from this 
you had to protect what was yours or people would take it from you mm-hmm. to we now rely on the rule of law to settle our problems. Yeah. What does that leave like, you know, thousands of years of evolutionary impulse to destroy the yes. other and to 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 physically resist things that are painful to you? What is that? Where does that leave us? Yeah. With this and testosterone floating through a body. Exactly. For me, that's that's one of the cruxes of this movie. Probably the biggest one is is how to deal with the evolution of society. Yeah. Uh, because, right. Because that's that's the main problem. Like if we didn't have the society getting in the way of kind of our natural instincts as right. as men, you could see a, a lot of this stuff just going down and, and men being men and saying that's how it is and we've got to do this and right. not thinking about it. Where now you're confronted with the issue, right? Sure. You can't behave the way that your body and brain is telling you to behave sometimes. Uh how do you deal with that? And that, that's and all- Tyler Durden's solution here is not one that I would choose. Sure, to go blow up a bunch of banks, but and you're talking about like you know this these things are you know societal changes that would have taken hundreds of years and probably wars have happened yeah. in the space of a hundred years because of the industrial revolution. Sure, and a lot of other reasons that you know you could go into hardcore uh, socioeconomic theory to to uncover, but. It's all good. Like everything that's happening, yeah. I think, is net good. But you do have this trans, like just like you. There's got a time where you got to trans, you got to transfer, you got to you got to transition from capitalism to socialism. If we're going to live in a Star Trek utopia that I think everybody wants to live in, they're growing pains, right? Yeah, and just like and then you got to you transition from barbarism to feudalism to monarchy to democracy to. You know, the fully integrated where we value all equally and we don't see each other's outsiders. I feel like a lot of that's a rough transition too. A lot of people are probably going to jump on this word socialism and they're missing our point. I don't A, let's call it the federation. Let's call it the federation, yeah? Yeah. For the sake of not having people just blank us out because we're using a word they find offensive. You're you're going to be eventually part of the problem if you cannot talk logically about socialism because just answer the question in a hundred years when no one has to make anything. And energy is free and abundant. <laughs> Who's going to have all the money? Okay. How are people going sure. to live? Do people have the basic right to live and be happy? Like, that's Fair. some form of socialism. I don't care what you call it, and we got to come to grips with that. Or we're I'm go- just saying being confronted with that yeah. idea is not an easy thing for most people. Sure. So if you if you frame it, which is what Star Trek does brilliantly and at, at points, sure. if you frame it as a a different thing people are willing to consider it and i think but that's weird to me that's interesting in a movie where it's asking you all these questions and encouraging you to think about it i mean it's funny to that a guy on a podcast just saying hey socialism something we're gonna have to come to grips with unless we want some kind of weird bizarro dystopian society if it's more palatable to imagine a bald english actor saying We've learned in the 24th uh-huh. century that we've evolved <laughs> beyond our greed and our uh, pointless accumulation of wealth and material. Fine. Okay. Get Patrick Stewart to purr it in your ear. But it's the That's same thing. That's the thing, thing, right? It's so weird because I think people <laughs> understand that on a base level. Like, like they Captain want Stewart- those things to get past greed, to get past all dishonesty and yeah. desire like that. But they're they're reflexively reactive if, to these if, words. If James T. Kirk or and or uh, Jean Luc Picard ran for president, they'd win in landslides. Yeah. Oh yeah. But they're yeah. also giant flaming communists. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. It's a problem with language and and emotion and perception and a lot of things that right are tied in the human experience, much like this movie. Uh, there are some rules. Do we need to go down the rules? I feel like everybody who's seen these movies. 
If you are, want, are this they movie knows about the rules. I, there's a lot more than I thought there were. There are eight in total. Hmm. Well, there are seven in total. I thought it was interesting how many rules are broken within. In fact, I wonder if every one of the mo- the rules are broken in the movie, and that's one of the points. But yeah, let's go over them. Maybe so. Okay, we all know rules number one and two. And those right. are flagrantly broken, flagrantly broken throughout the movie yeah. uh, by everyone. So, sure. Yeah. Uh, number three, if someone yells stop, goes limp or taps out, the fight is over. Also flagrantly broken, memorably in By one Ed occasion. Norton. <laughs> yeah. By, by the guy right in the movie. And also, uh-huh. I felt like there's a couple other fights where the guy went limp and stopped defending it and... Yeah. You know, they're so it's like, okay, that's an optional rule, sure. Yeah, it's it's real tough. Like, can you imagine a UFC match without a referee? <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> that's what this is essentially. Yeah. And with no padding and in a basement on a concrete floor. Yeah. With cardboard yeah. stretched over it. And you're uh, fighting the guy who started the club. Yeah. Yeah. No rules. You're gonna for fight you. Dana White. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd fight Dana White. I'd Maybe. fight him right now. I don't know, man. I think I'd lose. I definitely would lose to Dana White. I thought he's like small. He's kind of small, though. But he trains. He actually does MMA stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, the training is a, goes a long way. Six man. inches of reach, a hundred pounds of weight. Does, well, I don't does have a, that. Does a lot to overcome overcome training. That's true. Uh, number four, only two guys to a fight. Number five, one fight at a time, fellas. Number six. Fights are bare knuckle. No shirt, no shoes, no weapons. Uh, violated by bitch tits. I don't know the guy's oh, real that's name. That's true. Meatloaf. And I guess the, 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 they, they had to because he was wearing this elaborate fat suit and there's no way they can make it look real sure, with the yeah. shirt off. So that was a concession to the limitations of their... Come on, man. You can do a CG penguin, but you can't do bitch tits and CG. Well, did you know... So uh, what? who made this movie? Is it... It doesn't matter. David Fincher? No, whatever studio. Director. Oh, I don't know. Uh, so David Fincher wanted that scene of uh, the beginning, the the credit sequence, is essentially the fear center of Edward Norton uh, activating. And you follow it out of his body, and you kind of follow it, and you can see the sweat popping out of his skin. That was this elaborate huh, CG okay. sequence. And the stu- and it was going to cost like X amount of dollars, and the studio was like, we're not going to. Uh, i tell you what. If, we, if you cut the rest of the movie together and we think it's good, we'll pay for it. And then they saw the first rough cut like a year later, and they're like, "We'll pay for it." Yeah, and they did that I as a completely separate, a separate like the you know huh. a, a thing to come back from. So that's kind of cool. It's interesting they had this like expanding budget, so I feel like the, a lot of the CGI stuff got added after the fact. Yeah, because the movie got a slightly more expanded budget. That makes sense. Uh, that so reverse... they just filmed it with the shirt on, and then couldn't go back and do it without nah. reshoots. And... Yeah, I doubt it. And Brad Pitt was on vacation somewhere. But no, that 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 rule is bro- broken by Meatloaf. It is uh, number seven. Fights will go on as long as they have to, that, which I don't even know what fair. that means. Until I guess somebody taps out, goes limp, or yells stop. Okay. Uh, and number eight, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. So, I guess that's observed. Hmm. Um. It has to be like there's that's you know the he war- calls somebody out during the film. I saw that. Right, because you've got, you know, that's like a legal protection, too. Like, you guys are all committing assault and battery. Uh, you have to do, you know, kind of like before you join the game, you got mer- to make your bones. Sure. How can we trust you? It's initiation. Yep. Makes sense. Um, the three commissioners here, Alyssa, David, and Ryan, have some questions. I think this is mostly uh, David writing in. Okay. But I'm not certain. Um, which philosophy presented in the film appeals most to you and why and he, he says he's taken some options from reddit here uh of which i think 
these miss the main thrust of the philosophical points in this movie, mm-hmm. but these are kind of some things that are espoused throughout the film. Uh, there are five of them. I'm just going to read them all, and you can answer for yourself here. Mm-hmm. Uh, slaves with white collars, how advertising affects us. Number two, you're not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You have to work for something meaningful. Number three, you're not your fucking khakis. We are not defined by our possessions. Number four, it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Post-traumatic growth. And number five, the ability to let that which does not matter truly slide. Don't sweat the little things. Uh, I think there's something to all of those, but they're weird. Like some of them, like you are not a, a unique and beautiful snowflake. Um, I So it's weird because like... I, the way I'd express that is everyone by the virtue of being a conscious being mm-hmm. is entitled to a measure of respect and dignity. But what, I mean, I, I, I think that where the battle lines get drawn is what does that actually mean? Like, does okay. that mean you should be guaranteed a, some kind of standard of living? Does that mean mm-hmm. you should be guaranteed to, you should be safe and your body and your possessions? Does that mean that you should uh, not have to worry about being sick uh, or suffering a catastrophic loss? Does that mean you should be able to assume any kind of personal risk that you're comfortable with and society will bail you out? Mm-hmm. Like, what does the where is the tension between being a beautiful and unique snowflake begin and end? Okay, like that's a that's a that's an interesting philosophy, but I can see. Like that's one of the ones where I really see the uh, the limitations of it. Similarly, the one where you have yeah. to lose everything before you can. What is it? You have to lose everything uh, before you can. Before you're free to do anything. Before you're free to do anything. Like I, I, I feel like that that is um, that's an interesting kind of like you have to hit rock bottom or have a moment of clarity with your life before you get off your ass and do something. But like I don't think everyone. And I don't. These aren't universal. Like they, I know they there's people be. that come out and they they have loving families and they're uh, you know more fully adjusted and and they wouldn't mm-hmm. agree with that statement. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I don't know that that's universal truth, but it's certainly true in my case. Like, uh, you know, I had some traumatic formative experiences that enabled me to have a certain amount of social courage because like uh, you're being an emotional daredevil because like well. I've already I've already gotten through this amount of pain uh, in my life, and I'm still here. So, kind of YOLO, I guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally get it. that. Uh, I mean, as far as like the, how advertising affects us, I don't know. I mean, it certainly does, but I'm. I have an IKEA couch. Like that's the thing. I. I, I, my possessions are very utilitarian for the most part, sure. so I don't feel super affected by this. Although yeah. it's probably working on sub subliminal message level. Well, right? so like I have I'm been in that seeing the cock on the screen and going, "Oh, what was that?" Yeah, no, I see. I, I've I've personally been expect, uh, affected by the siren call of materialism, and uh, I see a lot of people uh, get fall into that trap. I think it's maybe cyclical for me. It's weird because I feel like that it's one of those things where in Western civilization, um, so many people live paycheck to paycheck of, of regardless of what their income levels because there's always something better that you can do. Like this yeah. – many, many studies say that your actual happiness tops out at about sixty-five to 
depending, and that's the United States, depending on where you live within the United States, but it's about there. And, and that coincides with that's the amount of money you need to not worry about money. Like a, you can afford insurance, uh, a bout of illness isn't going to ba- bankrupt you or have you behind on your creditors. You mm-hmm. can afford a couple of vacations and a few n- nice things and all you, like, you don't, you stop worrying about money, but now it's like, okay, you've got a 10 year old Honda. Do you buy a new Lexus? Like that's where you, you start having to have a hundred thousand dollars to still make ends meet. And then it's like, well, you know, we like going to Florida Maybe we should get a condo down there. Like where does the treadmill ever end? And I've been there. <laughs> Like I've been there yeah, and like yeah. spent a ton of money and been in a lot of debt and, and had all this money and nothing to show for it. And now I'm in the place where I'm making like 30 ish thousand dollars a year and I'm much happier. Sure. And I feel like I'm now I'm off the treadmill. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's something that Tyler Durden successfully does is get the hell off the treadmill. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a weird, it's not, I mean, it's, uh, um, what did I someone said that it's, there's the movies that are about slumming and there's movies about trauma, but this is like the first slumming trauma movie because it's like they're okay. the way they like they live is almost like homeless people. Yeah. And it struck me at the end of this movie how much money Tyler Durden must have. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a, a decent job. He's getting everything paid for. He lives in a house with no rent. He has no car. Like, right. He must just have a fat bank account right. at that point, unless and he's spending Joker, it all on soap making. As the Joker unquote. points out, gunpowder and gasoline are, and bullets are cheap. Exactly. Also soap, very cheap if you're stealing human fat to render down. Which is interesting when with the fascism angle is that like that's literally something the Nazis did. Uh, is it? I'm pretty sure. Oof. Oof. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know there's like okay. some really horrific things like, uh, you know, lampshades made out of human skin and pulling gold teeth out of people's heads and they're dead. But I thought that there was like rending of fat to make soap and candles. And maybe it was. Expl- yeah, no. So um, or maybe that's just an anecdote that I'm making up. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe that's a subliminal message that I'm inserting into the podcast. Um, but I mean, it certainly goes along with what Reddit or Dave, Alyssa and Ryan here are talking about. Um, with this, you know, how advertising affects us and all that kind of stuff and being defined by our possessions and... Yeah, but so uh, I guess what my point was that they're, like, we're talking about the slum versus trauma and all that, slumming versus trauma, is that they're not... Um, I don't feel like they got... If if you lose... The what reason is to rid yourself... Versus... The, reason, uh, the reason to rid yourself from of of attachment to material things is to attain peace and happiness. They don't. They sure. are yeah, yeah. like this is a weird thing where they are simplifying well, their lives their... so they can achieve their mission, which is to fuck up society or to shake. But up But you society. don't think that's a form of their own happiness? No, like... none of these people are happy by any. I don't think by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know that Brad Pitt doesn't get immense joy out of what he's doing, and and Ed Norton at a certain point before he realizes what. That's what I'm thinking. The like, even, the pro- even the protagonist slash antagonist wakes up at the end of the movie and is like, oh, this is crazy. I can't do this. So then my I feel like that I'm comfortable in saying that he wasn't authentically happy and fulfilled. Well, it's a certain like I, I really do view him as two different people. Right. Like there there's this battle of two personalities huh. and I view those as two characters, like both parts of the same character, but. But ultimately, kind of dueling and doing their own thing, and I think the. Do you think the Brad Pitt character is happy? Even? Yeah, yeah. Really, I think he feels you know steal a term from Fargo, 
these last couple of weeks uh, actualized in a way that Ed Norton never felt before. And that kind of leaks into hmm. how Ed Norton feels, and obviously because he's the same person. Uh, he just doesn't agree with the solution to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what what that part of his personality is doing, the Brad Pitt part, he definitely gets satisfaction from. Hmm. I don't know, because there's a lot of things in this movie where they talk out both sides of their mouth. Like, I remember uh, yeah. when they're in the subway and they're talking about who they'd fight celebrities, and Ed Norton sees the underwear model, and he's like, is that what a man looks like? And like, <laughs> but then fucking Brad Pitt literally is an underwear model. Sure. That's the funny thing, right? These beautiful And Ed actors. Norton was like a big, you know, like uh, he was a big buff, tough dude in the movie before this. Which I think American, American history. He X. actually had to lose like 60, 70 pounds to be this nerdy guy. But he's still got, you know, he's still, still conventionally handsome and he's got a rip. So it's like, yeah, what the fuck does that even mean? Sure. Like, I, that struck me too. Like, I but get the, I hand-waved I get it the away difference cause... between show muscle and go muscle, but... Uh, you know, when you cast sure. these people, like it's funny because Russell Crowe was one of the, was the first choice to play to Tyler Durden character. Really? Yeah, I got into. There's a lot of interesting things. Like, did you know who the first choice of director was? No, Peter Jackson. Oh. And he really, really wanted to do it. But I don't even was, know what this movie looks he like. He was wrapped him. up in in Lord of the Rings, like pre production on Lord of the Rings. And he couldn't he couldn't free up time to do it. But, like, wow. Russell Crowe, I feel like, would be a much better embodiment of that. Like, you know, even in his most ripped when he's Maximus and Gladiator, he's still, like, got a nice layer of fat. He's probably a hairy dude. He looks like a big slab of a man. Sure. Like, if you sure. want to make a point of, like, but I don't know if Fincher is interested in that. Like, I feel like he's kind of wants to explode the concept of what it means to be a man. Yeah, well, and I, I think he was winking at it, too. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah, we hired these beautiful actors, but... Yeah. You know that's Hollywood, and let's right. just let's move past that. Well, there's some so there's something I personally struggle with. It. Like I don't, I don't like society telling what you know, like what it means to be a woman, for example. Okay, like you know, like uh, you know, society wants women to be these blushing creatures and to be very chaste and virtuous, and uh, you know, to be in the kitchen and, and eternal giving mothers. And some women are down, some women aren't down with that and they want to do other things, but some women are like some women, sure. uh, you know, feminism to me means the freedom to be a girly girl. And that's like some of the things like I don't can, I, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that being a man is a particular thing. Like what is it? What does masculinity yeah. mean? But I also self subscribe to a lot of the ideas of traditional masculinity. Like, I take pride in my personal strength and my, you know, the fact that I grow facial hair. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, sure. there's certain things I consider that men don't do. And so I'm, am I a hypocrite? Or am I, am I now free uh, in this society to choose what it means to be masculine? And it just so happens that, like, two-thirds of the traditional masculine things, concepts I subscribe to. The other third being fistfights in basements and terrorism. Oh, no, I mean, the <laughs> idea of fistfights and physical violence, resolve, that actually appeals to me on a very visceral level. Sure. It just, it that's, doesn't, that's the biology work. It just, it's kind of like, you know, like, I guess that's the, that's like the enlightened masculine, like, the, you know, there's feminists to have rape fantasies. Okay. But they don't actually want to be raped. Like, I'm a, ma- okay. I'm a, I'm a, a men's liberation guy who likes the idea of getting into fistfights and, 
wouldn't you know i've been in fist fights but i don't think that's that's a way any way for society to work so it's like that's the sure. equivalent of my rape fantasy that i can just get into a barroom brawl and emerge victorious okay when in real life i'm uh-huh. going to go to jail or probably get stabbed or shot and never even start that fight. do everything you can to avoid the fight like they yeah it's the like fantasy. they say in this in this it's film. the empowering fantasy and the sure. excitement of the fantasy versus the reality of it yeah i get that i mean that that makes a lot of sense but I also don't think you should go through life afraid of being hurt either. Sure, and I mean like that's, if I that's kind of where it starts. I would for hate him, to right? be the like, type of person that would see someone in genuine physical peril and not want to help them because I might get hurt. Yeah, I guess the other part of the philosophy that he's espousing here is they say it several times in the movie is that idea that over a long enough time span, everybody's survivability is reduced to zero. Yes, and so take that to heart and say I'm going to do the things I want to do. And not worry so much about whether or not I will be hurt by them. Yeah. And and that frees you up in a lot of ways. You know, right. that you might be so paralyzed by fear or doubt in your abilities or something that you won't ever try anything. Yeah. And I think th- that's certainly valid. Um, and I think that's an interesting way to think. I don't know that – like, obviously, I'm not condoning any – of the stuff that goes on at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't think the movie itself does. I think the movie itself no, yeah, tears it down thing. at the end and says, sure. this is way too far. And that's what I'm lost saying. I, I find it shocking that people decide that they want to start fight clubs as a response to seeing this movie. There's something visceral about this movie though, that I don't find it that shocking. I, I find yeah. it concerning and I find it like, I would certainly never do that, but I can see where people, who are maybe a little less concerned about the philosophy and more concerned about the hype, hmm. deciding I want to go out and get in a fist fight tonight. Yeah, I guess, but hmm. yeah, because I I feel like there's healthy if you want to if you want to because there's something pure about fighting uh, an evenly matched opponent, you know. Like, uh, sure. it's, it's the ultimate, like, can I do this? It's why I and, love watching UFC and yeah, boxing. Yeah, there's also something, like, there's no, sh- like, uh, there's something in, you see in boxing and MMA. It's like, there's no really shame in being beat. Not if you give it your best effort. Not yeah. if you give it your best effort. Sure. If you're outmatched, you get beat. But there's no, like, shaming. Like, uh, you know, you don't see most of the time. Very rare, and it's usually horrifying. And people are, like, you get pilloried when they do. But, like, bad sportsmanship at the end of a match... Like, yeah, beginning, it's all intimidation, but, like, it's very rare to not yeah. see guys hug it out and have any of the glowing things to say about another man. So it's like sure. that they just fought. They spent 15 minutes trying to beat the shit out of. And I think that's interesting and kind of has a bit of nobility to it as well. Certainly. Uh, so I get it, like, but I think there's healthy outlets, like going to a basement and bare-knuckle brawling with no medical facilities there, no <laughs> referees. I'd say, like, go... You know, uh, join a boxing gym, do some golden gloves, maybe sure. some amateur MMA. Something a little more structured. To take some uh, Aikido or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or something like that. Don't, like, go I into th- an abandoned parking lot and beat up strangers. I think if you were telling that to Tyler Durden, his response would probably be something along the lines of, that takes the edge out of it. That that That's a safety net. Good. The fucking safety net is there to keep you complacent, to keep you uh, from... Do- from jolting yourself into reality is probably what he'd say like the only time if the only time you feel alive is when you're facing death potential death i mean that's my opinion kind of fucked up but at the same time it's not an invalid opinion it's just it's just an extreme one right yeah and i feel like that like that i'm 
I'm very much one of those kind of uh, whatever you do, so long as it doesn't affect others, is your own business. Sure. Yeah. Now it's interesting in this as we get increasingly connected in this modern world, the definition of what affects you versus what affects your neighbor versus what affects you know, yeah. like pollution in China affects the West Coast of the United States. Radiation in Japan. Well, when affects... these part-time dishwashers go in and get their ass beat and go to the hospital, well, that's coming out of my taxes, right? Something like that. Sure, but, but it's like <laughs> you know, I, I guess like if you want to be a base jumper and risk your own life, fine, whatever, knock yeah. yourself out. Yeah. But if you're, you know, you you feeling good about yourself involves beating somebody into where they have a lifelong disability, then what? So it's like, yeah, maybe yeah. you need. That's the thing. That's the, that's. I think that's why I say I'm comfortable saying Tyler Durden's philosophy is insane, because oh, fully, yeah, because I mean, his, well, you I need safety, light, like a modern life. The brilliant thing about modern life is we have safety nets. Yeah, like I said, I'm playing Durden's advocate there. Okay, sure. I, I'm not espousing any belief in that. Uh, I think certainly. Any kernel of truth that he has uncovered, he has taken to extreme lengths so far that I would say they're all bad. Um, th- but the thing about, like, you know, people going out and starting fight clubs after seeing this movie, this movie succeeds on a couple of levels, I think. It succeeds on the questions it asks, um, and it also succeeds on the way it tells the story and how visceral it all is, right? Like, Can I say that I think the first half of the movie is much more successful than the second half? I agree. In fact, I yeah. felt like the movie felt, in, like, the more I watch it, the more I think the movie's about 30 minutes too long. W- Once they started this terrorist plot, it, it lost yeah, it for me. Because, like, I thought there was like a lot Tyler of... when Tyler Durden goes away. There's a lot of really interesting subversive ideas in a man trying to connect to his emotions by going to... Uh, and not being able to sleep and trying to connect to his emotions and be integrated by going to support groups and weeping with other men. Yeah. Um, and there's, a, there's you know, kind of... Um, there's some men... There's, there's... It's almost like a mourning of of the loss of this part of societal males, right? Sure. As opposed to a reclaiming of it, which can't really happen. Yeah. It's weird because, like, um, it's hard to talk about you know, men's issues and men's rights, because there's been so, there's been so much cons, there's been so much co-option of like the, the term men's rights is almost a toxic thing because I associate it with, um, a lot of angry dudes screaming about how much feminists are bitches. Um, when there's a lot of things to talk about, like, you know, there are some things like, you know, why is men's suicide rate so much higher? Um, hmm. why do men disproportionately, f- uh, bear the burdens of fighting wars? Um, sure. Why do men get uh, the short end of the stick on cust- you know, parental custody? And I know there's a lot more to the issues than that. You These know, are huge issues. What, bringing up what is what is men? Why are men you know uh, less likely to seek mental treatment even now in the 21st century, and the more uh, more likely to be told just to suck it up when they're dealing with depression? Sure. Um, but I think it's interesting that like, yeah, you're right, like. Some of these ideas were like, you know, having a group of guys that you can talk to and and be emotionally open to is a healthy thing. But it's something that the concept that the movie kind of mocks too. Uh yeah, I guess I guess it does. There's also like what did you think about the scene where huh. Chloe, she's the cancer survivor who's dying 
But what's the first thing on her mind is she just really misses physical intimacy and she wants to get laid. And she starts to turn the thing into like, no, seriously, anyone come over to my house. I yeah, have yeah. pornography. We can get it on. And like, and, and lists out these sexual products. Yeah. But then like throws in amyl, amyl nitrate in there, which I thought was cool. But she is quickly ushered off the stage as like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we're here to support you if you're dying, but if you still want the lid, that's gross. Yeah. You don't got any hair and you're dying of cancer and like, get the fuck. Maybe someone else is just as lonely and want to hook up with you and that's, but get out of here. Even just like, not saying that you're not worthy of it, like saying that that's an inappropriate thing to want. Yeah. In in, in, in the, uh, I, I wonder how a cancer support group would actually handle that, but that seems like it's a perfectly valid thing to talk about. As as much as yeah, as much as the trauma you've been through is, I mean, what, if if you want to get to any kind of solution personally, you have to explore the options. Yeah, if not there, then where do you discuss that? Where is yeah. your outlet? Yeah, that's a healthy? that's a really good point. But uh, she is she's just ushered off that stage so fast. Uh, but the, the amyl nitrate thing. So I think, like I said, it. it there's also this physical. Maybe it succeeds on a third level because I think the storytelling in this is phenomenal. I think the way it compares um, all of his his night jobs and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, we find out obviously that Ed Norton has all these night jobs as Tyler Durden mm-hmm. um, or himself. I don't know because he has insomnia at the beginning, right? And he thinks he solved it by going to this group, but instead he hasn't been sleeping. In fact, he's been going out and doing all these things as Tyler Durden. What do you think about this twist at the end? Because I, I feel like it's a pretty successful twist. I thought so, too, yeah. I saw it coming a mile away. And I think you're supposed to. Like, yeah. They, they they show Tyler Durden on the screen many like, times. Like, if, if you... I, I, I don't know. Like, maybe... Because, I, I, you know, you never know. Like, every, like, I don't want anyone to feel bad about this because everyone is oblivious to something. Absolutely. There will be something that's, like, smacks you in the face. You can't believe. Like, and I've been podcasting for five years and got thousands of people writing into us, and I've experienced it many times myself. But I feel like you're pretty slow in the uptake if you get to the reveal that the movie chooses to like beat you over the head and you haven't figured out that Ed Norton yeah. is Brad Pitt. So the I guess the big giveaway here for me, go you know, going through it a second time, knowing already that mm-hmm. he is in fact Tyler Durden, uh the big giveaway is when his apartment explodes. Like before they even mention, oh yeah, the lock was frozen and there mm-hmm. we found explosives and all this stuff and way before that. But when he shows up at his apartment and it's exploded, I'm like, of course, because he was making explosives because he's Tyler Durden. But you didn't realize when his apartment first exploded that he was Tyler Durden. Not the first time I watched it. This oh, okay, time, yeah, yeah, yeah. At looking right. for it, I'm saying that's a big giveaway. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I do think that it's the movie does hold up mostly. Uh, to scrutiny, trying to be like, okay, Ed Norton is Tyler Durden. I know this from the beginning. Does this work? And it, I think mostly does. Yeah. I think it does too. The, and I, I think the things like, um, they talk about him being a projectionist, right? And and doing this thing at night. And they talk about the symbol in the top right corner that uh, that kind of says, hey, it's time to change the, the, the real change, And then yeah. later on they mention it in the context of his narrative, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, you see the signs and it's called the changeover. You keep going, yep. going on and the audience doesn't realize it. Yep. Uh, so obviously they were they were playing with that. And then like all these subliminal hints throughout the movie, um, which tie in, you know, with what Ed Norton's doing with the penises on mm-hmm. the screen in Disney films uh, and Cinderella 
Yeah. And I, th- I think it's a pretty interesting way to tie the meta into the narrative in a way. Mm-hmm. No, the structure is pretty pleasing. And it, again, it holds up on multiple watches. Like there's a couple things with, yeah. especially when they had Tyler and Jack and uh, Marla, the Helen sure. Bonham character together mm-hmm. that I felt was a little stretching the bond the bounds of where I thought, what I thought could happen because like at one point Ed Norton says he was at work and he comes home and like Tyler and uh, Marl have been fucking all day. And I'm like, well, how the hell if you've actually got memories of you working, like you are literally in two places at a time. And I couldn't, I, I there's a couple of yeah. interactions in there. The more intimate encounters, like I couldn't quite square. And then you can wave it all away. He's crazy. He's yeah, crazy. <laughs> I that's a, it's harder for me to wave some of that stuff away. I yeah, did yeah. think also was brilliant the fact that the Tyler Durden aspect of his character was plotting against the Ed Norton aspects of his character by creating these internally, yeah, like like these very serious rules that are internally inconsistent and also subversive just on the face of it. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you're gonna the only way you're gonna get into Tyler's army is if you survive a bout of just being told you're worthless to go to fuck away, you're wasting our time, you know, get the hell out of here kind of thing. So how do you call Project Mayhem off? Because anything that you do as Edward Norton, Tyler Durden has already conditioned these recruits to see it as a shit test. Sure. So when he tells you something... How do you know whether or not to do that thing? Like or it's this weird it. parallel structure yeah. where Edward Norton is coming to the conclusion this is all crazy while Tyler Durden is putting a straitjacket around him to prevent that realization from taking effect. Yeah, it's and like Tyler feels, realizes that he's realizing. That feels pretty course. satisfying. It totally does. Yeah. I actually think him, Edward Norton blowing his head off was I that doesn't feel that doesn't feel like an earned moment in the movie. Like I, I felt like it'd have been better if he'd have just died. Yeah. Like he, I think you're right. He shot himself in the cheek, but it blew out Brad. But it Pitt's blew out head. the back of Brad Pitt's head. Yeah, to me that is that's the part that still it didn't work for me the first time I watched it, and it does it it gets less and less effective as it goes. I mean, I want to write it off and say that's a the, the physical act of doing that is what jolted him out of his mental problems, his mental issues, and his hangups with being Tyler Durden, uh, and so that caused Tyler Durden to go away. I don't know. Well, like, we, so we talked about this on like the leftovers of the other cast. Like, I know you can shoot yourself. That's actually a surprisingly fraught way to commit suicide because if you, sure. sh- there's a lot of places that are just empty areas of your skull, and you can permanently disfigure yourself or f- make yourself a vegetable and not actually die shooting yourself in the head. And I wonder, like, in another movie, if uh, Edward Norton sticks the gun in his mouth, shoots it, fades to black, and he comes to in a hospital free of Tyler Durden. But now the news is just a buzz about all these, you know, the chaos that he's like, he has to live in the world that Tyler created is an interesting way to end the movie. Whereas just him and, you know, uh, him and Helen Bottom Carter. What, wait, yeah. what the fuck is her I name? think it's Helena. Helena Bottom. I, is it? I've got the IMDb it's open Butchered here. name drops, you know, like that's what I'm known for. Yeah. Um, Helena Bottom Carter. Which you've seen her in a lot. Carter's of stuff. bottom. I, you, she's been in basically every single. Uh, if you need a, a relatively attractive, unhinged woman, call Tim Burton. He'll know. He'll have the number. She'll, he'll have her number on speed dial. <laughs> um, 
there's also Miranda Richardson, I think, is another one that's kind of in that same. Huh. They're, they're, I don't know like, if, if one of them's busy, the other one will take the role. Uh-huh. But um, I, I I don't know. That last scene, although it's funny. What did you think when Where Is My Mind started playing? Because 2015 has been the year of Oof. Where Is My Mind. Yeah. Uh, I immediately thought Mr. Robot. So first I was oh, thinking Mr. Robot, GoldenEye, sheerly from a plot perspective. Like, uh-huh. we're going to destroy the banks. We're going to wipe out all debt. Uh, then I thought when they play that song, I'm like, oh, my God. This yeah. is this is Mr. Robot. They just lifted this. Mr. Robot is the series form of Fight Club. Absolutely. From, you know, I don't want to spoil Mr. Robot. But there's a lot in the Fight Club I think you just that, did. I mean... I don't know how to how to talk about Mr. Robot in any capacity without sure. saying, "Hey, this is Fight Club." I mean, you also it's like I so so is that so which use of "Where's My Mind" is more impressive in hindsight? Is it the appropriation by Mr. Robot uh, for essentially the series that is an homage to the movie, or is it the leftovers, which plays with some similar concepts but a completely radical different take on it? Uh, the reason I like The Leftovers best, I guess, is because it's not a singular moment where it's all just sinking in. It's kind of it's kind of piecemeal a little bit, and it doesn't use the actual song. It uses instrumental versions of it. it does I think it maybe at one song, point it does yeah, use the actual song. He's actually listening. It's like the conceit is he's listening to it on his iPod or something. And some people will see that as overkill and, and mm. you know, gilding Lily, pointing out the obvious here. But I think the way it uses it, uh, multiple times and in different styles is really what got me. Like, there's a version of it which is like on a steel slide guitar, mm-hmm. which sounds fucking amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and it's so appropriate to the theme. I I just like that one better. Yeah. So leftovers arguably overuses that phrase, sure. but in a more satisfying artistic way. Whereas Mr. Robot is a straight up uh, Fight Club homage. Whereas in Fight Club, I think it works thoroughly because. You're not thinking Mr. Robot and the Leftovers. <laughs> but it's also weird because, you're not, like... You're not rolling your eyes going, this again? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because that happens so far after the reveal of Tyler and... Yeah. Ed, uh, of Brad Pitt and Ed Wartnorn being the same people. That, like, everyone that wrote about it this year had me convinced that it played when the audience first figures that for themselves. Like, no, it's like no. 30 minutes later. It's a long time, yeah. It's a long... That, he that, finds that, out that in the hotel room and then... forever, man. He... So he finds out in the hotel room. Then he goes back to the house. He discovers everything it's that's confer- going on. It's confirmed. Goes to the cops. Yeah. So much happens. And then the song plays. Yeah, it's a little weird uh, in that sense. And I, I think maybe it's Mr. Robot times it better. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I felt like that that last act in the movie is a bit tedious. Like when he's going from city to city, invest, and I'm like, come on. And he's going to the bar and is like, you know, who have you ever seen? It's like, it's like, really, man, really? You don't, you haven't figured this out by now? Sure, sure. But, I think he's confirming more than figuring out, isn't he? Right, but like, then he does it so many times. He then right, calls Marla, right. and it's like, Jesus, who I'm, am I? Yeah, tell yeah. me my name. Yeah, come on. One of those scenes I think would have been sufficient. Having three or four of them really was too much for me. I think you're right, but I mean, the third act, if if you're going to be obvious, it's kind of the place to do it. <laughs> Yeah, you want you want your audience to get the point. Yeah, um, I, there are a couple of questions that we have already brought up. I, the most important question that I have to ask you: What's that? Would you fight William Shatner? It depends. It depends on which era of William Shatner you're talking about. When he's a strapping thirty-something, 
He's James Star Trek or Den- Denny Crane from Boston I, f- I fight Denny Crane. You'd fight- I fight Denny Crane every Denny day. Denny Crane would whip his pistol out and shoot you. That's what he'd do. <laughs> You're right. That's, that's not you, true you, to the rules, though. ethnic types. Okay, okay. So am I fighting him as a stranger on the street or in the construct of this club? Hmm. Because it changes it, right? Well, yeah, that's the other thing. Is you're also fighting William Shatner, the man, not James T. Kirk or Denny Crane. Sure. I mean, if if it's, you know... I think, that, I think shirtless, that's... shirtless, bare-knuckle brawling in a basement of the man William Shatner... Yeah. I think I take this era of William Shatner all day, every day. He's 80 years old. If I take on 30-year-old Shatner, I think I lose. Hmm. He's a bigger dude than me. I think it's interesting because it felt like both of those examples, Hemingway or Shatner, were kind of like, I want to see who the real man is. Like, Hemingway's got sure. this, he absolutely was a tortured genius, but he also has this reputation for being a man's man. Like, the only yeah. real sports are bullfighting or auto racing. Everything else is games. <laughs> and, and James T. Kirk, come on. And, like, I'm going to fight this fish and, and go out in this ocean alone in my canoe and, and then fight off sharks and come back. And it's, you know, it's like... <laughs> It's, it's, it's all these this very manly fucking things like is but was he was you know in a fight maybe he's a bitch or whatever you know who i'd like to fight what quentin tarantino because <laughs> that's his one head, i'm genuinely his not head sure. keeps getting bigger and bigger it's just, <laughs> just a bigger and bigger tomato can man i don't think that's an interesting fight at all well i'd love because he's hear... gone on record as being personally abhorrent to violence and that's why he's a, so violent okay so a i think i have a decent chance of taking quentin tarantino even though he's taller and yeah has more reach yeah b the trash talking would be epic from that guy right until you punched him in the mouth <laughs> I mean, the doughy intellectual film <laughs> film geek, a pacifist versus anybody. I'm going to take the anybody. Well, I mean, he picks Gandhi at one point, so come on, right? Like you know, the, the, the other pacifist thing is like, doesn't discl- discount you. Sorry. Sure. Like I feel like you know guys like a Russell Crowe. We've already talked about him. Like I feel like what you see oh, is what you get. I would never fight Russell Crowe. No, right? Ever. Right? Because I feel like he won't have any he won't have any problem, and he he could be ninety and I wouldn't fight him. Okay, same with like Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood terrifies me as yeah. well. Yeah, I feel like those guys are uh, you know pretty close to what they're portraying. I would have never fought John Wayne. John John Wayne's another uh, guy. Yeah, I would never fight Sean Connery. Yep. There's a story. Did you hear that story? There's been it's been going around the internet popular that I guess Peter O'Toole told it, uh, or no, it wasn't Peter O'Toole. It was. Um, uh Michael Caine that they okay. were out they were they were out at a bar like squiring some young women around England at some point in their heydays in like the 70s and uh someone picked a fight with Michael Caine and like Sean Connery huh. came out of nowhere asked Michael Caine to uh hold his coat for him and he cleaned <laughs> a bar with like three dudes he fought three dudes and won oh it's amazing I mean, it's like The Rock. Well, it's people don't rock. know Sean Connery is like a Mr. Universe back in the day yeah, when yeah. there weren't steroids. So, like, if you had big fucking muscles, it's because you were moving big fucking things around for a long period. Of, yeah. So he was like a physical specimen. Sure. Uh, there again, is that uh, is that the, is that the masculine ideal? Someone insults you in a bar and you just beat the shit out of them because you can. Well, so that's the interesting thing. And then right? you we- rock out <laughs> and probably fuck these women with Michael Caine. <laughs> Sure. Like, sure. Is that what it means to be a man? Uh, I it's what it what it's what it means to be Sean Connery. How about that? All right. Uh, But that's the other thing, right? You you talk about show muscle versus go muscle. Mm -hmm. I feel like these guys are mostly go muscle. 
I mean, well, yeah, I mean, they're ripped, the thing, but like they, they're, they're they, not bulky. They got, in they're sh- not... they got in the shape through solely through fighting and breaking. And it's made clear, right? Like rendering the fat out. Strength, like that's yeah. what Fight Club is. Yep. So it's making them harder. And I feel like that was portrayed pretty well. And so when they ask, you know, is that what a man's supposed to look like? Mm-hmm. They're, they have a little license to do that, I guess, sure. in the narrative of the film. Uh, the other question that these people are posing to us is, is there a better Tyler Durden? And they ask like, is meatloaf a better Tyler Durden? Uh, can we think of a better one? What are they talking about? I, what does that question even mean? That, I don't know. That's literally all they, they wrote was, is there a better Tyler Durden? Um, and when they put it in the context of like meatloaf, I'm thinking, is there a better Tyler Durden within this film? But I'm not certain. I, I, I feel mean. like the one that the guy who most committed to the cause is Jared Leto. Let's t- yeah, let's talk about Jared Leto. Leto is it Leto? I, th- I think it's Leto. See, yeah. Another butchered name drop, but he spells it wrong. Uh, <laughs> Jared Leto, it's his role in this is almost like half movie cameo status, right? Uh huh. Like he has no important role to play other than riling up the troops he's after Bob's like, death. He's kind of like Sting in Dune. I guess he's kind of exactly like Sting in Dune because Sting, is, Sting in Dune's job was to be pretty and to get an, annihilated by the hero at a pivotal point in the movie. Does he turn into Quasimodo halfway through? But that's the, <laughs> the thing. Like then man, he like... doesn't join. He doesn't join House Atreides. He still is like you know. So it's weird because he is this you know pretty guy and he he's come in there and it almost looks like that the Tyler Durden is taking his shine to him. Yeah, and Ed Norton beats him down. In reality, he just, even though he's permanently disfigured. Gruesomely uh, so. Horrifically gruesome, so. Gruesomely so. Even though he's permanently disfigured, he becomes like the most loyal acolyte of the Project Mayhem. Which I think makes sense. So the is context. he then the most Tyler Durden of all the recruits? Probably. I'd say. Because this is about the time that Ed Norton stops what does it mean, being on board. What does it mean that Ed Norton... So here's another one where I, I'm not sure how successful this integration of the the the, the Brad Pitt and the Nortons go. Um, Meatloaf as bitch tits or whatever his name is. Bob it, Robert is, Paulson. Is, okay, Bob. You're right. It's Bob. Uh, he's on the front porch, and Tyler's just explained that, like the fact that you've got this uh, you know this recruit process. We're going to give him out. There. We're going to put him out there three days of that food, water, encouragement, and if they stay there, then we let him in. Uh, so he goes out there first time with the meet with with Bob and says, "Get the fuck out of here! You're too fat and you're too old, old man." And he, he packs up his shit and leaves. Yeah, Edward goes and ob- obviously the Jack narrator character convinces him, like, "Look, this is just a scam. If you can make this three days, you're in." Yep. What the fuck does that mean? I think that and is that why Ra- is that why Bob dies because Bob shouldn't have been there. And oh, Tyler Durden I, knew he was too soft for this, but Edward, Nor- but but the narrator, because of his sentimental value he placed on Bob's friendship. Boom! I think that's the point. Like the point is the reason he's coming out of this is because it's now having personal effects on someone he cares about, right? And he's he's realized that he's formed this relationship through this group therapy that he never formed with any of these other people through his cause and his solution for his problem, uh, or Tyler Durden's solution for his problem. And I think that's what starts to jolt him out. And then you can see, like, he goes completely off mission when Bob dies. So I think it's that personal attachment that's the thing that's bringing him out. The thing he was lacking before and looking for but didn't realize it. And then he never got any of that. And he, in fact, sets up 
an operation that is very similar to the job he had before, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this this complicated machinery is turning and these people are just doing their menial tasks within it. But the thing that he's missing there, I think is that personal attachment and the thing that ultimately brings him out of it. Uh, what, what did you think about, cause there's a, there's a lot of um, possibly apocryphal stories about the making of this film. Oh, really? uh, one of the I ones that I liked the best was this story that uh, the original line when you know Marla says I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, it's supposed to be like I was supposed to say, be I want your abortion, and <laughs> okay. all right, equally fucked up. The Fox Pictures president of production didn't like that. It's like this is too offensive. But you've got to change it. And Fincher said I will change it on the agreement that whatever line I put in there is final. You can't change it. Why did he ever agree to that? That that's why I say it's got to be apocryphal. Because why would any a guy who wrote the line "I want your abortion"? Why would you be like? Because you got it. This is like a, he's not going to pull his punch when after the devil a deal offers like you a golden fiddle. If you can beat him at fiddle, don't fucking yeah. The the devil's <laughs> an awfully damn good fiddler is all I'm saying, and you're uh, walking right into his trap. So I I mean that's that's and there's also a story uh, which maybe this is true, but the uh, Helena Bottom Carter. Or Carter's bottom, or whatever, is her Hell's bottom's Carter. Uh, she thought because she's from England, she thought that uh, grade school was kind of like high school. Oh, okay. It was like one of those things because they got a different system. They got like Not primary, secondary, uh-huh. whatever. Like they they got different names for it. She thought it was high school, and when she <laughs> later found out that that's actually at best a sixth grader, uh-huh. she's actually personally disgusted by it and wishes she hadn't recorded the line. It's I don't know. It's like. I, these stories are just too just so for me to believe. But everybody mentions it like there's true. Okay. I mean, I could see those being true. I don't know why they wouldn't be. Well, because what fucking production manager of Fox would make that deal with David Fincher? Well, he was probably deluded. Thought that, oh, I've set him straight. I believe it was a like, female, I, too. So check the privilege there, Jim. Uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, My they, idea of a production president includes the is feminine he, i don't don't you know i don't know what's your problem but sure you know just history <laughs> is a problem there to overcome uh but yeah he he or she whoever probably thought you know what i've put them in their place there was probably a larger discussion around this not just you need to take that out okay but whatever i put in is final okay rubber stamp mm-hmm. it probably wasn't that it was probably like a long discussion where they put david fincher in his place and felt firmly that he was beaten down and then David Fincher says, nope, after he walks out of that meeting. Uh, you know the other scene I really like? What's that? Raymond's near-death experience, where Tyler shows up at the convenience store and drags out this poor oh, Korean or yeah, Japanese yeah. or Chinese kid out sure, and gets him on his knees and says he's going to die tonight. Um, I think it's interesting because, like, uh, it, it, I've always thought that like one really cool use of like uh, a holodeck technology would be to insert yourself into experiences like uh, put yourself on the beach of Normandy, uh, and somehow okay. if you could with some kind of pharmacology make you forget the fact that this is a simulation. Like if you want to find out, like would you storm the beach? Or would you cower in the gunboats and die? Like. Uh, if if you if you if if the other thing used to be like if you had a a situation where you could actually die but it'd be simulated like they did the, but you could keep the epiphany so like they inject you from drug sure. then induce a short term amnesia so you can't understand why you're there but you completely buy it and you die 
and you can keep whatever epiphany you had. Wouldn't that be an interesting service? Like, yes. what if you found out you're the type of it person would. that would shit your pants and you wouldn't storm the beach? It's like a or vanilla you, sky sort of thing, right? Or yeah. Or what if you found out that, like, at the your death's door, you consider all your life a failure? Like, what do you do with that? Like, I, it, that would be either super empowering or super, like, defeating. But I think it would be a valuable But then piece you're of, given the opportunity to change it afterwards. Well, so that's, that's the, the good that's thing, right? The, that's the upside. And that's the, the whole reason why Brad Pitt does that. Here in this scene sure. is to, to set this person on a path that he believes that this person would actually want to live and would find fulfillment in. Well, that's the interesting thing, though. Uh, Tyler Durden himself would consider that life a bullshit. That's the other thing I, I thought was super interesting about this scene. Yeah, I is that that's I the life of mediocrity. Like, like, that's kind of weird that, like, it, it made it a more mean spirited scene that he's essentially taking this person who is living a schlub's life and, like, Attain the heights of mediocrity. Your dream is to be a veterinarian's assistant. Well, by God, it was like, uh, you know, like I. What what is the movie telling me here? Maybe he's hoping it's a first step along the path. I think I don't know. Or maybe would consider enlightenment. Maybe we're supposed to just see that as a fundamentally mean. Like that's the first breakdown. Because I feel like that's the first time that Ed Norton's like, I'm not on board with this. Like this is a purely mean-spirited thing you're doing no one is getting any kind of real enlightenment and you don't really you don't really buy into the epiphany that you've induced this person to have you think it's bullshit and stupid yeah to me like is that threat like the threat he makes which is uh i'm not going to kill you now but if you're not becoming a veterinarian in the next six weeks i am going to like the threat of death there is spurring this guy's actions, not like, not in the same way that he would have this life is precious sort of feeling afterward. Yeah. Like he, he literally has a goal now, right? Not like life is precious and I need to realize that and, and find a way to, to express that in my own life. But like Brad Pitt has just set him on a mission. It's, it's not, you're right. There's something off about it. Also, what if he tries and fails? Like, I, you know, it's like, that's the thing is like life, it's weird to think about how you would do things differently because life is a journey. Like, I have no idea that I'd be in the position I am today, even 10 years Hell ago, no. let alone 20 years ago. Sure. And like a lot of people, uh, you know, I've, I've had people in private correspondence and just, you know, talking to me in life. Like, do you regret, like, do you regret the first half or the first few chapters of your life? And I'm like, it's hard to say that you do because like, yeah, mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it again that way. But the person I am is a direct result from all the path. That I've walked the on um, my life this far. I think the answer to that question depends which day you ask it, right? Mm. Like, do you ask it to the twenty-one-year-old me who's just been disowned by his family? I probably say, yeah, I regret it. Do you do you ask the thirty-three-year-old me who's you know got a self-sustaining, hopefully self-sustaining business, <laughs> uh, who's much more satisfied with his life? I think the answer is no. So like. See, I don't think there's been any point where I, if you'd asked me if I regret that I would have said yes. Hmm. But then I think again, I probably would have. The, the, the again is like I guess uh, a lot of the you know a lot of the big painful transition I went through in my life was that a slow result of philosophical debil- the deliberation the, the I did with internally, and you know, I, I felt also, like, like I felt like I was a. I felt like I was fully in control of my life at every point that I made decisions. Like nothing was thrust upon me. 
I guess you know what I mean. I guess that's the difference. Like regret implies decisions, decision making. Yeah. Uh, whereas, like wishing you could change something in the past doesn't necessarily. Like I wish I was not born into a crazy religion. But if you weren't, that's not be, regret necessarily. That's the thing. So like maybe I, you're right. Yeah, and like yeah, if I wasn't born in a crazy religion. I might be a fundamentally more arrogant, less uh, empathetic person, and I'm already pretty fucking arrogant. So yeah, maybe so. You know, it's like maybe the reason I'm kind of a good guy now is because I've been through some humbling experiences. Yeah, and I mean potentially, uh, maybe you were kept out of trouble at an age that you might sure. have gotten into trouble. Yeah, I mean, like I, uh, uh, by that religion. So who knows if you'd even be better off, right? It's, sure, it's maybe impossible I'd be in jail to know. or dead. Sure, or maybe you'd be. Filling your days and nights with amyl nitrate and blowing up sure. banks, yeah, in some desperate hope that the backups somehow failed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Robot's plot much better thought out than Fight Club's plot. Uh, Got to say, uh, I don't know. Or maybe in 1999, those things didn't exist, but I somehow doubt it. Uh, surely, I mean, shit. offsite backups exist. Come on. Uh, I don't know, man. There's like, uh, it's. I don't know how things are today, but I remember I've you know I kind of uh, cut my teeth on the industry as it was created, and there is I never went into a new place of employment being thoroughly impressed by their backup procedures. Yeah, but you never worked at a bank either. No, that's true. That's true. Banks have legally required. But when I see like whenever like I see like a TJ Maxx credit card fiasco or a PlayStation Network being had, I never like. You know, these are big Fortune 500 companies that are getting, you know, pants taken around the ankles and smacked on their bottoms. So, you know, like, yeah, 99% might be good, but that means there's still 5 to 20 big companies that would be shocking at at how exposed they are. (laughs) Maybe so. Uh, I don't know what else you want to talk about here. I feel like I've gotten most of of what I want to say about the, the, the film said. Okay. I don't think that uh, the commissioners had any other questions, so. I mean, there's a lot of individual points that I liked, like, you know, there's, like, a lot of images, like him being in the bathroom holding the Ikea catalog like a centerfold. Like, that's something he's <laughs> kind of jacking. But it's like, I don't know, it's uh, not, it's not. And bowel cancer one... being their favorite support group. Because, like, little things I thought were interesting and funny, but... I guess the idea of, like, all these guys shaving their heads to be, like, monkeys ready to be shot into space for, you know, the the improvement for a greater good. Because mm-hmm. uh, he compares them to monkeys in space. A couple times, yeah. A couple of times. I thought that was interesting. Um, also, the, the the fist fight that he – the first fist fight he has with Brad Pitt outside – Ed Norton has with Brad Pitt outside that bar – and these guys come up and they're looking at it and it's just Ed Norton beating the shit out of himself is really ingeniously mirrored, I thought, in the fight he has in his boss's office with himself, mm-hmm. right? Pretty cool there. Uh, and I also thought at any moment, like, the proper response is to call the police. And that is the thing that he least wants in the world is an encounter with the police. You know, I thought the same thing. Like, I thought his boss was incredibly weak. And I wonder what yeah. he was hiding that he was so afraid. Well, I mean, they show that, like, you know the fact that this company hasn't has a in fact. Do you believe that? What's do that? you believe that there is some in in companies when they do recalls that there is an actual there's some kind of actuarial table where it's like 
this many lawsuits with this much settlement with this much versus cost of recall. And they, I know. <laughs> oh, totally. Like, I worked at in an insurance company. But do you man. think, do you Absolutely. think that's the routine or do you think that's the exception? Because I feel like it, I, I think it's standard practice, especially for like insurance companies. I don't know about manufacturers. Cause I've been in companies where they did that things. The, the only downside of revealing something was embarrassment. Okay. Um, but there was, well, let's see, I'm, 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 I'm phrasing this wrong. Um, I've seen companies make things right to the tunes of several hundred thousand dollars when the only thing at risk was, I guess, like the fact that they're embarrassed that they let something happen. And like, this is this, this, and the idea that someone would then, you know, cover up actual deaths because it's cheaper. I I don't know. Maybe I just don't want to believe that. Maybe so. But I think it also only becomes a problem in aggregate when it's pointed out, right? Like they can do so much to hide it because the guys who are doing – the guys who know that this has happened a lot around the country are the people who are in the employ of the company. Mm. And if they're not inclined to be whistleblowers, sure, then no one ever finds out, right? The guy at the auto repair shop – uh, who or or the the ambulance driver doesn't realize oh there's a lot of Fords coming in of this model and uh, they've all been this year there must be something faulty. You can yeah. never get that perspective unless you are the the analysis guys. Yeah, or I guess the other thing, the way to look at that is that like the deniability. You know, like at what point? Yeah, you know, because like at what point is it negligence? Yeah, because like at any time, like if someone came up right now and we got a letter from a lawyer saying because of the statements you made on the latest Fargo podcast, a listener committed suicide and you are being sued for 2.3, my first response would be get the fuck out of here. What the fuck? And that's not like if the first like you when you're a company making goods, like I don't think anyone sits there and like, hey, let's kill people with this product. Absolutely, yeah. So, like, the first time someone dies at the hand of your product, like, are you, you'd be a credulous moron if you just assumed, like, oh, well, we must be at fault, right? Sure. Like, the natural, like, there's no way even we can do it's... something this evil. It's like, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating at what point it becomes a natural reaction, the skepticism that your product killed people, and what point it becomes, like, sweeping under the rug. And I kind of feel like the only way to do that is gauging what percentage of the things. Because like if a bolt... like obviously cigarettes, that's a that's classic example. Like <laughs> well, at some point, sure, I'm going to go a little more benign though. Like okay. a, a a bicycle manufacturer, right? Uh-huh. Uh, they they build these bicycles where occasionally a bolt will fail mm-hmm. through the wheel or something yep. that holds the wheel on. The wheel goes flying off. People go flying into the street and die. Yeah. How many of those? Like, the first one happens, it's like, we are incredibly sorry. We had no idea. Like, I, I think the accountability comes when people know about it and are actively hiding it. Well, sure. Like, if there's a manufacturer, like, if the design if the design was unsound, then, like, you got to recall the product. If, if the design was sound, but there's a manufacturing flaw that led a certain batch, like, then... It's, Which it sounds like there was, right? Pumps blowing up. Yeah, I mean, it's, maybe. It's maybe a comp- it's, it's a design flaw, too. It could be. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's... I... I, I I know that absolutely it happens because we know it's happened. We've seen, sure. but I also wonder like at what point, you know, uh, and that's a continuum, right? There's a continuum between healthy doubt and cover up, right? And it's not like a bright white line where like, you know, we, well, I guess sometimes maybe it is like the report came in from our internal research and oh yeah, there's this flaw that caused the yeah. metal to be 50% weaker than it was supposed to be. And we fucked up. 
But there might be like when it's a design aspect. And then when do you hold people accountable? Yeah. You know, like if there is a design flaw that they just didn't realize was a problem. Right. How do you hold someone accountable for something they couldn't have understood? Right. Uh, and didn't realize was a problem until after the fact. Like, sure. B- big questions. Well, also, and like, then what is the liability for like uh, if you're an experimental aircraft manufacturer? Sure. It's different than if you are a person making motor bicycles. Yeah, absolutely. Because more people are or if at risk. You're, yeah. If you're making mountain climbing equipment, like, mm-hmm. you know, like that's, that's, I, liability is fascinating. Sure. Uh, anyway, I think that's about all I have to say about this movie. Okay. So, uh, well, since this is in as much as this is a Christmas present. Yeah. Uh, I hope, uh, the three, the backers are happy with the quality and that, uh, it, it gave the person who is the target of the, <laughs> the recipient, let's the call recipient, him the recipient. Yeah. Uh, I hope it brought you joy. I do not want to be terrorism mix up with this target stuff is not sitting well with me. <laughs> I hope you don't, you don't burn your Christmas tree down and uh, as a, as a protest of disgusting <laughs> podcasts and we are held in any way liable. Uh-huh. The consumerism. Yeah. You got a fucking tree in your house. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's it's really your fault if you're You know who I want to fight? Daniel L. For having a Christmas tree in his house. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. I think that's a good way to go out. Uh, thanks again to Alyssa, David, and Ryan for commissioning this and Daniel L. for being the recipient. For being an awesome enough guy to someone wanting to spend yeah. uh, the kind of money it takes to get us to two jackasses to talk about something. Daniel L., I think, is the type of guy who would cry over Bob Bitch Tits Paulson when he dies. Mm. Not be so callous as to bury him in the garden. He's more of a narrator, less of a Tyler Durden. Yeah. He might want to fight yeah. you after hearing you say that. Well, bring it on. <laughs> Meet him at Post Office Box 635 in Batavia, Ohio. Sweet. He's he's there at least once or twice a month. You might find him. All right. Thanks again. We will see you guys next time. All right. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>